Today I welcome Jane Prescott, headmistress at Portsmouth High School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss exam reform, the role of mobile phones in the classroom, fake news, future skills, and preparing students for a globally connected future. Obviously coming up to your 10th anniversary as headmistress of Portsmouth High School. Congratulations. What are some of the biggest changes that you've noticed in secondary school education in the past decade? Well, apart from keep changing education secretaries, and with each new secretary comes in a slight different approach or change. It wasn't so slight under Michael Gove, perhaps. So there's been tweaks along the way, but I don't think there's been anything particularly seismic, and that would be my criticism of it. I think that perhaps now education does need to look at what we're actually offering young people. We've just talked about careers. We want them to have the skills necessary to have this range of careers for them to be able to hop about a bit more, a bit more flexibility, more agility. And does our education system offer that? Or is it that we're still shoehorning them down a route that we've done for 60 years? How do we actually ensure or try and deliver change? Because you mentioned we haven't really seen much. The last 18 months to two years have been Uh, a melting pot of change because we've had to change, we've had to adapt. But how much of that do we feel that is going to be driven by politicians? Do we think we can really change education? Or is that really going to be down to the few that have the power within the independent sector to drive their own mini change? Well, I've always said a lot with the NHS, education shouldn't be the political football it has become, and that we should actually take it out of that politics changing game that we all seem to live. That would be my thoughts on that. Um, It's difficult to deliver change when there's a resilience and a resistance to change too. And you've got to ask a variety of people, including employers. What do employers want from young people entering the workplace, coming out of either school or university? Very few people realise that you can't leave school at 16 anymore and just go into a job, which was the case when I left school. You've got to stay in education or training now until you're past 17. And so are we really offering our young people a chance to train, to acquire those skills that are going to be useful to them in the workplace? Because we should be. And it isn't just about independent schools. Obviously, most children are educated in the state-maintained sector. And so it's across the board. And I I sometimes think that when you look at young people, I'm a governor at a local maintained sector school and they do very well. But there are young people who leave school with very little in the way of formal qualifications. And I think it then makes it much more difficult for them to find their way in the job market. And we know that employers aren't looking for those results. And you mentioned skills. This herein lies the problem. You know, suddenly employees are really shouting and going, look, we don't, we're not looking for the the straight A's at A level. We're not looking, not even for the university degrees. So it's kind of throwing up this this whole question about what really is the point of going to university? What really is the point of, of finishing school with a set of A levels? And what are our choices and how do we actually maybe drive that change? Absolutely. And of course, university is changing. There are many more degree level apprenticeships available, and that's increasing all of the time. And we should be making sure that we're putting everything on offer. There's an article in today's media about 
universities and whether some of the ones that are not Russell Group, for example, do they have the same cachet? And I think they do because they're offering a very different education system. The teaching is different. The courses are different. And we should value them all for what they offer rather than um, a rather snobby, old-fashioned way of looking at where you went to university. I do believe that university education enables young people, enables people to show what they're capable of doing and achieving. And often it's said to me, so I go and do a degree in English, what's open to me apart from teaching? And it isn't about English or any other subject leading you to a particular career or job path. It's having had the opportunity to study to that level. And we mustn't undervalue that because it's huge. We're also in this country, I think, quite good at knocking ourselves and comparing ourselves to other places, other countries, other education systems. And I still think ours is one of the best in the world. And we should value that and we should build on it. How do you ensure that education keeps up with the accelerating rate of change as technology advances? We have to invest. That's investing in the technology, in the hardware, in the software, but also investing in people. We need our people to be able to use whatever the new system is. And I think we can all see a time when a certain low level of professions is going to be done by an algorithm. You won't need to go to a lawyer. You don't have to now to write a will to perhaps do basic bookkeeping. If you have your own business, you won't need an accountant. That's already here. That's already possible for everybody and anybody to use. So we must make sure then that we're offering an education system that's beyond that, that's offering a long levity to the careers and the opportunities that we're offering our young people. covid The pandemic saw exam structures change, marking change, the award of, you know, almost children's futures were determined and thrown up in the air. Do you think that GCSEs are still fit for purpose? And are we teaching the relevant skills to today's youth? I, for a long time, have not thought that GCSEs were fit for purpose. And I know not everybody agrees with me on that. And nothing to do with COVID. Long, long, long before that was even an idea on the horizon, I have thought that GCSEs don't offer everybody the best opportunity to show what they're capable of doing, achieving and of studying. I just don't understand why we've got this arbitrary grade C or level four that means it's a pass or not a pass. So does that mean if you've got a load of level twos, what does that absolutely show? Are those exams and the curriculums and specifications that we're all working to, are they teaching what we need children to know? For a long time, I thought that we should have two levels of maths, for example. There should be basic numeracy that people show that they can pass. And then perhaps a more advanced level if you want to go on to use maths in a particular profession. If you want to be an engineer, for example, or study maths at an advanced level or even at degree level. And it's the same for English. We just need to have a a basic level of English. And then there can be more advanced levels of it to show what some people can do that's of a greater ability. I always thought it was a shame that they got rid of A-level creative writing, because in fact, that really did show what people could do at a higher level in creativity rather than just being able to understand the English language with punctuation and so on. 
I think the time is right for a look at what we do and what we offer and when. Do we need to be testing young people at 16? Can we not just move them to the next phase in their lives and careers to lead them to employment, long-term employment, because that's got to be best for everyone? But I wouldn't like to rush it, and I don't think it's got anything to do with COVID. This has been coming for a long time. And we've got to take time now to consult with everyone from employers to higher education and further education institutions to schools, to teachers, to the children themselves about what is it that we should be offering that will help them in the future. You know, employers are looking at problem solving, creativity, adaptability, critical thinking as kind of key skills. A number of schools are migrating their curriculum across to the IB because they believe that that's more fitting with the way that you can adapt to those skills. And also it becomes not really subject-based, but it's topic-based and you, and you get to share and learn all the skills that come up to the topics. Do you have much experience of the IB and how that compares to the GCSE and A-levels? I don't have much experience of the IB. Um, I have lived in Germany, which of course has a, an IB type system. I think if we were going to keep it much more general later on, then that really does change the education landscape, not necessarily for the better. So for example, one of our current problems with doing IB at A-level age is that our GCSE system doesn't lend itself to an IB type structure. If we were to adopt an IB type structure for that lower level and then at a higher level, then our university courses have got to change too. The countries that have those as their route to university then tend to do general uh, degrees such as liberal arts and then go into much more specialisation. So, for example, a doctor in some countries will do a general degree first and then specialise as a doctor as a second qualification, Not whereas our young people at the moment at 18 go off to study medicine. What changes have you put into Portsmouth High School that are kind of adapting to the needs of employers and what the world looks like? Well, we do the EPQ, the Extended Project Qualification at A-level, and that has increased in popularity to the point at which virtually all of them do it. And I think it's a great indicator how well and how good they are at research and self-study. It gives them an idea of what an undergraduate dissertation structure looks like. I think it really does give an added advantage. I'd like to see that becoming more popular at GCSE age as well. And that are equivalents to the EPQ. At the moment, I think it's hard to squeeze into our current curriculum, but it would be nice to have that there because we've got rid of coursework. There's very limited opportunities for independent research. It's a good skill to acquire at those ages. Here in the Girls' Day School Trust and the GDST, we offer limitless learning to year 13 so that they can, if they wish, take a MOOC at that stage, one of these massive open online courses, and expand their horizons, their ideas before going to university. So I think there are ways in getting that breadth into the curriculum alongside studying subjects that we really enjoy. And do you or have you looked at offering your own educational resources as a MOOC for other students in other parts of the world to leverage your knowledge and your great teaching? The GDST has certainly looked into this and they have done that for teachers and they have looked at um, various learning packages. But I haven't here at Portsmouth High School 
gone into that yet. But I definitely think it's something to consider for the future. What we have done here is that we have a programme of thinking skills. We call it our ARET programme. We enable the girls to think about ideas with a much broader approach, not trying to put things into very small compartments, but to think much more laterally as well as deeply so that they acquire those skills before they go off to the next stage of their education. I just love the idea that the independent sector particularly can offer up some really great resources and really great teaching, some innovative thinking that can be then accessible and available to the many. I often talk to independent schools who have gone out and franchised abroad. I feel that they are chasing the money and not really doing much for education. The idea of actually being really good at education, but making it accessible, I think is a really great platform that all independent schools should start to look at. Because imagine what educational change you can drive by just bringing some of your incredible teaching that all everything we've learned over the last two years about being able to deliver it properly digitally. Just because you've got a good teacher or good content doesn't mean you can deliver it well. So maybe that's something that we can start. Maybe we can start this platform that may snowball because I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it because it's almost like in my future vision of the future school is that it becomes more accessible, like pick and mix, that I can come and do something. My daughter could come and do something from your school or even someone else from around the world. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? We already have that. We actually have that in the GDST. We do a lot of collaboration with our other schools which does include two academies up in Liverpool. So we actually do that much, much more now because we've all got so used to online learning. And I wonder in the future whether education at the secondary level anyway will go much more towards the TED Talk type um, system where you'll have not always, but you'll have tutorials, but maybe for the delivery of big concepts and topics, it will be done to thousands if not more TED Talk style with smaller discussion groups much more locally as a way of educating more people and hybrid learning almost certainly will come in where there'll be some at home learning and there'll be some present in the classroom. I think we're all going to have to adapt to a level of that. I think it is that mix. It's that hybrid star because what it has taught us I think this last 18 months is that Whilst we can deliver education remotely, people need people. There is nothing, there's that social aspect, that environment, the ability to be with other people that develop you as a person. And it's not about the hard skills and the knowledge you pick up, it's the soft skills. But I do agree with you in terms of having the TEDx style speakers because they need to inspire the millions. And then you then have tutors that can deliver the support of the learning piece of it. So I'm completely agreed with you on that. I want to talk about mobile phones and smartphones because schools often ban them and they consider them a distraction to learning. You've expressed that we should be using them as a tool instead. Can you expand on this? Not everybody realises that a laptop and a tablet can do everything that the phone can do. And certainly everything that young people want to do on their phone, they can do on their iPad or their tablet and their laptop. That's quite easy. So all the messaging services and so on. and we make children have another device. Many of them have been using their phone as their online learning tool while that we've been in lockdown. And now all of a sudden we say to them, well, you, you know that thing that you've been using to learn with? Well, you can't now. And it's crazy because a lot of children are much more adept at using their phones as reminders, as calendars, as note machines. I mean, just the 
microphone function within a Word document on a phone where it records extremely accurately everything that's said is useful in a classroom scenario if you have somebody who can't get information down fast enough or for whatever reason their learning is hindered in some way and they'd find that really useful. So I've always encouraged students to take photographs of the board when the teacher's finished writing all over it in order to be able to capture it to use later. You know, there are all sorts of reasons we should use our phone. Yes, they are a distraction. They're just distraction to a lot of adults. How many adults do we know in meetings who pick up and look at their phone during the meeting? We're all guilty of this. And I think the older generations are far worse than the younger generations who've grown up with only a smartphone. They've been in, what, 10, 12 years now? And so they really haven't known the bricks that we often talk about or no phone at all, which, of course, it was when I was younger. So I I think we've got to manage our classrooms. And there are simple ways of doing it. They've got to always have them silenced and in their bag if they're not being used. Or you have them face down on the desk. So again, they're not a distraction. They're silent and the teacher knows where they are because they're there on the desk. And if you're not using them in that particular lesson or at that time. I see all of year seven at this time of the year and I have a short meeting with them individually. I always ask them, do you have a mobile phone? There are a number that don't, that choose to not have a mobile phone. One this year has told me that her brother had had a mobile phone from when he was in year six, but she has chosen not to have one. She says she can do everything she wants to do on her tablet. So doesn't need a mobile phone at the moment and has chosen not to. And I think that shows just how independent they are and how prepared they are to be different than to the crowd because it's not what they want to do. So I think if, and if you demonize phones, you just shove it underground. So they go into the toilets and use them and they perhaps hand in a phone that's an old fashioned old phone, no SIM cards. I know a school that checked all the phones and very, very few of them had SIM cards in them, the ones they, handed, ones they handed in. What are we saying anyway? At what age do we say you're going to have a phone? Is that 16? Is that 18? Is that 14? Why are we deciding this? Most apps have an age limit. That is where the control should come in. So I think that these the companies that produce the apps then have a moral responsibility to ensure that underage can't access it and that in particular applies to things like pornography to sites that incite violence suicide they are absolutely the sites that ought to be controlled and banned and that's what we've got to look instead of saying in schools you can't use them most abuse of phones goes on out of school in an evening, at a weekend, not in the school day. In the school day, I think we've got a responsibility to teach children how to use their phone, how to be responsible with it. The pitfalls, and there are pitfalls, the digital footprint that they're already leaving when they're liking things on the web or on apps or whatever it happens to be. We must teach them about that. I talk constantly about the etiquette of phones you know, when and where it's um, appropriate to use them, the safety side of them. And I want them to feel that if they get it wrong, that they can come to us in school and say, I've made a mess here and I now don't know how to unpick it. 
and we can help them. But if we say that they can't use them, that they're banned, that it's illegal, that it's um, something that they shouldn't have, then they're never going to come and ask for help if they feel they need it. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Interestingly, because a few comments on what you said. The first thing is about kids absolutely having access to it. I, I agree that they should have access to it because in a world where they go out there, we all have access to phones. They need to learn to have them and not be distracted. The biggest problem we have is educating them and actually having the right level of understanding ourselves as adults, as teachers, as as parents, because that to me is where the big divide is. We are absolutely the worst role models. We have all become addicted ourselves. You know, I just look around, you know, my family, my friendship groups, we all have. And it's become this obsession where we're not present enough and we haven't built our own frameworks or rules around our own responsible uses. So we're almost not even giving the right signs. And, you know, so I find that it's a very difficult thing to be able to then make sure your teachers also know. Because I can imagine, I, I just see my, my daughters particularly absolutely distracted, but constantly, it's those notifications. And one thing I did, and I did this about three years ago, is, and I think this is the best advice I would give any parent and any student, is turn off notifications. It's the one simple thing. And someone said that to me uh, three years ago, said, just try this. And it was actually a real massive shift in behavior, because what that made me do I became responsible for when I wanted to access things, you know, getting retweeted, getting all these comments and mentions It pop, 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 pops, pops, and you end up not doing anything. And you can't control when those messages or those alerts come in. And so turning them off allows you to go, do you know what, in this period, it's lunchtime or I'm going to have a coffee in the morning. That's when I'm going to go and check my, my, my social, check my things. Have you adopted anything like that? Is that sort of best practice that you look at in your school? Certainly, that's what we teach them. And I also say, keep them out of the bedroom. So not at night, you know, phones ought to be downstairs. Maybe you plug them in charging, but the charging point needs to be away from where children sleep. And again, I think as adults, we're bad role models on that. I have an old fashioned alarm clock because a lot of them say, oh, I need it for my alarm. But they don't if they have an alarm clock. I have that with my daughter. And every time I say, your phone's downstairs, yeah, but I need it, daddy, I need it. I go, look, I've, I've got you a, an Amazon Alexa. That will wake you up in exactly the same way. So set your alarm. They will always find a way. It's always. And it's just kind of, please, I need it. It's like a safety blanket. and But it's when they get woken up. With my eldest daughter, there was this moment where, again, we trusted her at the time. And but actually what we found, we couldn't trust her friends. So while she was being responsible, maybe we could leave it in her room and not do it. Her friends woke up, started FaceTiming her like at one o'clock in the morning. And so she wakes up completely in a bad mood anyway. She had a broken night's sleep. And so everybody had the impact of just because they had access. And I mean, it was ridiculous. So we then started to put the phones downstairs but eventually again with I think with parent not parent apathy but we're just I'm just done in and it's just another battle every night to fight you know and I've got four kids so the battle of three teenagers so the battle becomes quite long we go oh, we're almost going like we'll deal with it when there's a problem 
And isn't that a problem in itself? Is that we've, we're all just so done in with it all that... But it's like everything that we educate our children about, whether that's eating too many sweets or drinking alcohol. There comes a point where they've got to be responsible for themselves. So what we're doing is we're showing them the way. Because it isn't just phones. That's what annoys me about phones. It is actually laptops and tablets too. So it's no good just saying, right, well, your phone's got to be downstairs because if they've got their tablet, that will ring too. Um, or they can FaceTime on that or whatever it is that they want to do. So it's all devices need to be downstairs. And we don't have a landline anymore at home. In a way, it slightly concerns me that nobody can get hold of me at night because my phone is downstairs. And it's those slight changes. So then I've got to have my phone upstairs if there's an emergency. If I've got a school trip out, for example, I'd like to think that they can get hold of me if they needed to, whatever the hour is. So there are certain times at which I will have it up, but I don't have the notifications coming in. So I don't know emails have arrived. I don't know that I've got messages from WhatsApp or whatever. It is only if somebody actually calls. It is educating everybody to know that your phone can do that. I remember this is some time ago, a parent had withdrawn, taken off their daughter's phone, all of the apps that they felt she was obsessed with. And they checked her phone periodically to check that she hadn't put them back on. What they didn't realise was that she was putting them on at night and taking them on off in the morning because you can do that. It retains the data. So when her parents checked her phone, it wasn't there. But of course, they re- she was putting it on in the evening so or at night once they'd done the check. We have got to be up to speed too about using these things appropriately because as you say it's difficult it becomes a battle too far it's a battle you don't want to have it's like asking them to tidy up their bedroom sometimes it's just too hard when you're working yourselves you're busy busy working people to be also having rows about whether they have a tablet a laptop a phone in their room we have created the problem ourselves again by buying all these extra device. Everything is connected too, so we're we're all kind of being bought into this access anywhere, everywhere. Everything gets connected for convenience and ease. I find it astonishing that, that I can now get a McDonald's delivered. That really has taken fast food to another another level. That I really didn't think I'd see that in my lifetime. But it's normalised with our kids. They have access to everything anytime, everywhere. I want to talk about safety, I suppose. And how do we actually keep children safe by helping them to learn to identify things like fake news, fake people, fake stories, because they are, you know, let loose with this access to everything. How do we go about that? Well, it is through education. It's exactly the same as we educate them about other things that are harmful to them. You just have to keep educating. In our school, we have cyber ambassadors. So these are older girls that the younger girls know are the cyber ambassadors and they can go to them for help and advice. And that works very well. Um, We also buy into any advice that's out there from all different sources. There's lots of people who come and give talks and now it's so easy to do it online. And I think that the more they're told by different people, the more that they are likely to understand. And actually, children are quite savvy about the fake news side of things. In fact, if anything, they become a bit cynical. I think it's older people that get 
caught up with it more and then worry about the younger generations who, like I say, they're a bit cynical. What worries me more about young people's use of devices is how immediate the world has become. If they send an email, they expect a response immediately. We get that when people contact school, perhaps to come do some work experience here. If they haven't got a response that day, that hour, they contact us again. Because, as you say, you can get your McDonald's within half an hour delivered to your home. You can get oh anything at all delivered. Most things you order on Amazon come the next day. They're not used to waiting for things at all, whereas we had to wait for the post. And other, other waits, perhaps even to afford it, they don't, they don't have that. And um, I think that's something that we need to perhaps row back a little bit on, because otherwise we are slaves to these devices, because everybody is expecting everyone to be looking at it all of the time and therefore responding very quickly. Yeah, because nobody actually takes real ownership of the policing of it all, because it sits between the school, the parents and the child. And, you know, often we're all stretched again, because we're still caught in the 24-7, 365 fabric, everything accessible, everything now, convenience is just just normal. I do worry for my kids. And actually, my kids often say to me when they look back through photos of me as a child with my parents or their grandparents. And it's often, I wish I didn't have a phone. I wish I just did that. And I kind of wish they did too. And I think every, every generation does not wish to be their child's generation because of the changes, how different it's become. It's become faster, faster, more competitive. How do we go about bringing some of that digital detox in? Is there something we should be doing as part of the curriculum to get everyone to live without devices, to feel how, feel how free it is? Or it's, it's a bit like going cold turkey. You know, we always need to wean ourselves off for a bit then how do you get them to go back in a different, more organised way? Well, we do have um, a detox. For example, in our year eight, we have a, a fortnight where we say, don't use your devices in an evening. We change our homework because that's the other thing. They're doing an awful lot of their work on devices and encourage them to play games. We have a games club here where they play cards and other board games and so on, which is hugely popular at lunchtime. And one parent said that when the daughter sort of appeared downstairs with Monopoly for the sort of third night, they thought, oh, gosh, give her back her phone. <laughs> um, actually, by the end of the two weeks, said that they were really enjoying it and had realised that as a family, they had spent much, much more time together. And I think lockdown has given us that opportunity to a degree, because they have been learning online all day, then they're fed up with being online and they have looked for other things. And now we need to capitalise on that. We have a um, reading fortnights where everybody brings in a book and they're reading for 15 minutes at the start of the day or at some point during the day. And that's everyone from staff to the children. And I think, again, once they get captivated by a book, although that, of course, can still be online. Some of the year sevens, when I talk to them, I say, what do you use your phone for? Some of it, it was reading uh, because their book is on their phone. They haven't got a Kindle. So it's all on one device. It is tricky, I know. And it's difficult to not use them, even if we're doing things like reading a fiction book. It's here to stay. I do feel that we're in the midst and it's going to get worse for a mental health crisis because of, because of the last 18 months, but because of the technology and our ability as humans and you know, adults and parents to 
really be able to provide that time, that presence and that understanding to support them. One thing I've always said, though, is that if children are busy with their activities and hobbies and interests, then they're less glued to their technology. And some of the answer in this is making sure that those opportunities exist for all children, not just children in independent schools. And I said I was a governor of a local maintained school here, and they now have an hour after school where it's activity hour. And the children can stay on and play football and do club activity, like play games and so on. And it's hugely popular. And that's what, if we want the government to do anything, quite frankly, it's invest in that infrastructure. So all children have the opportunity to go and join a football club or go to scouts. A lot of these things at the moment are run by well-meaning people or charities. And yet, really, we should bring it into being part of school life. I think that's a great way to finish. I completely agree with you. I just don't think there's enough volunteers. I think the volunteering network itself has shrunk. Completely agree. I think we should be having more activities, more opportunities for the kids to get outside, to do new things, to try new things that don't involve a phone. You know, I've noticed it in my own hockey club, the the number of younger kids staying on it, it suddenly gets reduced when they go through that critical period between transferring from primary to secondary. And it's a big thing to do with the drop off with parent supports to make sure that your child comes and enjoys that battling the hormones of the teenagers. A lot of these clubs are expensive to join as well. So that's that's another factor as to why some may not do that is because the opportunity is not there. Maybe their families can't afford that extra to pay for them to go to a local club of some sort, swimming and so on. They're not cheap activities. And that's a problem. I mean, is it Sinclair from the England football squad who talked about his sister taking him to football training and she used to take two buses while his mum was cleaning a hotel and him and his sister started off the day by helping their mum clean. And I wonder how much they could afford in way of, you know, unless you're picked up by a scout that perhaps pays for some of that training, some of those activities, even the transport to going to them. That's where we should be investing. Jane, thanks ever so much for taking the time. That, that, that's been amazing. So Nice to talk to you. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.